It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 55, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. This episode goes live on the first day of the 2016 Moses Organic Farming Conference, a year after I stayed up all night to get it launched on the first day of the 2015 Moses Organic Farming Conference. And I'd like to take a moment here to thank everyone who's been a part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast first year. Thank you for commenting, rating, and suggesting. Thank you for sponsoring. Thank you to my guests for being so giving of your time and your knowledge. Thank you to my partner and love of my life, Angie, and my daughter, Isabel, for putting up with late nights and squeeze schedules. And thank you for listening. This show means nothing without you, and with you, it means everything. I'm looking forward to a second great year. My guest this week is Jane Holly Stevens. Jane raises certified organic medicinal herbs on her farm in North Freedom, Wisconsin, and turns them into creams, lip balms, and salves that are sold nationwide. With about five acres in production, Four Elements Herbals produces a wide variety of annual and perennial medicinals in the Baraboo Bluffs of Wisconsin. We dig into medicinal herb production and post-harvest handling, meeting FDA regulations for processing and for selling herbal products, and how Jane has grown the Four Elements Herbal brand in the marketplace. Four Elements Herbals recently used a value-added producer grant to support the expansion of their product line, which in turn drove significant growth in the business overall. Jane shares her experiences managing growth and moving into a national market, as well as how she has passed the field production torch to a new generation and the ways that her job has changed as her business has grown. We also get to learn the meaning of the word garble, which for me made the whole show worth it. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soils for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Jane Holly Stevens, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad to join you on this beautiful morning as the sun rises. Well, and, and you guys got all the snow. Right. It's just beautiful in the Baraboo Bluffs. We're so fortunate to be living here surrounded by all this pristine nature. And um, even in North Freedom, which is eight miles down the hill, the snow is, isn't sticking to the trees like it is here. But it's just a different environment up here um, on top of this hill where, you know, the st- snow is still sticking to the trees and we have big icicles and it's just gorgeous. You must be living right. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like it. <laughs> now, um, we were we were just talking before the show, and and I, I'd like to I I'd like to get some background on how you got into Four Elements Herbals and where that started, because you didn't start in the beautiful Bara Blue Bluffs of Wisconsin. No, it that was about. Well, it went from like 81 to 91, so there was 10 years before that. Um, I graduated from UW-Madison in 81, and then my first job out of college was actually on the east side of Madison at a research facility, um, and they asked me to put in an herb garden there. I mean, that was the 80s where there was so much money in industry and um, like decadence, and so they were just going to put in a formal herb garden just for the visiting European scientists. (laughs) Pretty frivolous, it sounds like now, but it was a great opportunity for me. 
so um, anyway, so I got to install an herb garden there, and I approached it really like a landscape job because I, I didn't know anything about herbs. But then, you know, within a year or so, I had an herb garden, so I started using the herbs for cooking and then crafts. And then um, I went down to Dallas, and, well, I got a job at the Dallas Arboretum. Things in my life changed, and I I went down to the last place on earth I would expect to go, Dallas, Texas, and um, but was working at the Dallas Arboretum where they wanted me to put in an herb garden, and um, so I did that, and that was so. Then I started teaching little herb classes through that arboretum, and then uh, my son Forrest was born in '87. And while I was pregnant, um, I built a greenhouse. I was had three acres a half hour outside of Dallas in the Rockwall area. So anyway, I knew that when I had kids that I wanted to be home because I felt like kids were really fun to play with and, you know, just sounded like a good time of my life to do that. So, yeah, yeah so then started just selling herb plants. But then when this is very interesting for your audience, I think, because this is when Jim Hightower started, like in the movement for certified organic came in around 87. And um, my friends were telling me, look, you are the perfect candidate for certified organic. So I decided to just be certified organic. So I stopped using my, uh, you know, commercial fertilizers and, and watched my plants stop growing. So it was just horrifying for me. I remember walking out of the greenhouse saying, I feel like I have 5,000 starving babies because I just didn't know what to do. Because there wasn't a lot of education about how to really grow um, organic in a really vibrant way. Then, Well, and yeah, and you couldn't just pick up the phone and call somebody and order some good organic fertilizer to sprinkle over the top of your greenhouse plants. Right. But eventually I caught wind of a bad guano, which saved, saved the day. But <laughs> the interesting thing was I had signed up for so many herb events and I didn't have my regular rotation of plants. So to fill in my booth, I thought I'd make some like lip balm soaps or creams or something. So um, I did that. And the beauty was people were much more intrigued with the products than the plant and my 300 different kinds of herbs. Um, and so to me, my interpretation of that moment was by making that commitment to nature, by going organic, this new door opened to me, which was herbal products. And then along that same time, you know, I had a little family and um, whenever there was a little ailment, I would just look at my herb library in my herb garden and start making remedies. And I saw that the herbs were more effective in healing than my friends who were taking their kids to the doctor. And I was just amazed and enthralled with healing that was coming from these simple plants out Hey, it's Chris here. I had to bleep out the word healing back there just a moment ago because Jane's not allowed to make any claims about the efficacy of her herbs in healthcare issues. So that really became my passion and my path was to understand and learn more and more about how these plants can heal people. You really leveraged from doing the the gardening and the growing to doing this, well, I mean, to, to, to be 
to use an overused term, to doing the value-added products. Right. And, you know, I didn't know the term value-added at the time or or anything. It was just kind of the way my life unfolded there. Um, and, yeah, now it's, uh, you know, almost 40 years later. And yeah. so, and now you're located, like we talked at the beginning of the show, you've moved back up to Wisconsin in, in the early 90s, right? Right. So I moved back around 90. I lived up by Stockholm, Wisconsin, which is a really cool art com- community. But then David got into grad school in Madison, so I moved here in 91. And I just looked for any farm, five acres, or anything within an hour radius of Madison. And this is where I feel like was one of my big lucky breaks. Um, the only place I could do a deal was 130 acres on top of this pre- Bluff, an hour from Madison. So it was just a gift from nature. And um, I felt so much gratitude from landing this place. And also it was an amazing deal um, that I just felt like I'm here to serve humanity. It's just because I just felt so humbled and grateful to land this great piece of property. So tell us about Four Elements Herbals as it stands now. Okay, well, um, since you said stands now, the thing that really changed everything was receiving this value-added grant three years ago, and that was that really changed everything up because for so many years, from let's say ninety or really eighty-seven until three years ago, um, so twenty twelve. Um, I was just happy, like paying my bills and making enough money to live and servicing, um, natural products, you know, my, my organic handmade products to the Madison co-ops and some stores in the twin cities. Um, but then this grant, um, I had to write the grant where at least 51% of what I grew was in the finished product, which the only thing that really qualified was herbal teas. And we also wrote the grant to expand my market into grocery stores. And um, at the time it was to be just regional, but it became clear that I needed to sell farther just to make enough money to build up the market. So anyway, so it really bumped everything up to where we had to make, you know, do much more production of herbs. Um, I leased a building in North Freedom, which we have a little retail section. I have an office manager and shipping and manufacturing facilities down there. And it just, uh, it also paid for me to go to the big trade shows on the East and West Coast, Natural Products Expo East and West join um, professional organizations like the American Herbal Products Association. Anyway, it just changed my life. And I can't say that it was an easy project, but um, it really changed everything with Four Elements. So you went from doing, I mean, I and the place that I know Four Elements from, I mean, I see your stuff in the co-ops, but you also have a, a big stand at the Moses Organic Farming Conference in the exhibit hall there. That's always where I, where I see your stuff see you the most and kind of go, oh, wow, you know, Jane's doing, I mean, what, soaps and lotions and creams and lip balms and bath salts and body butters and essential oils. And I mean, it's all, I mean, it's like little herbal paradise right there. It always (laughs) smells so good. And, and uh, so you went from doing that to really going heavily into the teas. Is this all with your own production? So the grant required 51% of what was in the finished product. 
that we had to produce here. So we went from growing about 600 pounds of dried herbs, which could supply us with herbs for our creams, tinctures, lip balm, salves, soaps, etc., um, to growing closer to two tons of herbs. And um, so still we couldn't produce everything, you know, but almost everything. Uh, but with the teas, we're not able to produce everything. Um, I, I found actually a really good organic grower in the Minneapolis area outside the Twin Cities at the organic conference, at the Moses conference, who um, is helping me grow some of the herbs for the teas. All the other products were able to grow almost everything. There's a few ingredients that don't grow in the Midwest, but really my line is based on herbs that grow here. So, when when we're talking 600 pounds or, or 4,000 pounds of herbs, what kind of acreage does that require? I mean, like, tell me a little bit about, about what the farm actually looks like. Okay, so even though we have 130 acres, we have, um, you know, our buildings and then uh, 40 acres of woods, about 40 acres of hay fields, and we have a few grass-fed beef, a small grass-fed beef herd, so they have pasture and a couple pastures for rotational grazing and then the hay field. And then we have um, the growing area, the production fields are about five acres. But what I did to maximize my pounds of herbs was to plant crops that can be harvested a few times a year. Like uh, we're really focusing on lemon balm, really my favorite herb in the world. So that was really fun to see like, 25 rows of lemon balm compared to two. Uh, <laughs> and then like nettles and holy basil, some th things that would keep growing throughout the season that we could get multiple harvests off of. And now holy basil is an annual, but the nettles and the lemon balm are perennials, right? Correct. So you're, and, and managing all of these organically, can you, can you describe your production system to us? Yeah, so um, I, I, my favorite part of my job is starting seeds in the spring. So I have no problem starting, um, you know, a bunch of seedlings. It's my favorite thing to be in that greenhouse in the springtime. Uh, so I start um, annuals and, you know, I do a lot more than that. And I do plant sales in the spring too. So I have, I'm kind of the local supplier of organic uh, transplants of herbs, medicinal herbs. So I grow um, those. And then um, I always grow some extras of the perennials because if a row gets too weedy, uh, which usually happens after three years, we'll just till it under and start another row. Um, we've noticed that over the years, if you, no matter how well you manage your perennial crops through, you know, hand weeding, hoeing, mulching, um, that after a while the weeds just take over and so then we'll just till them under and replant those perennials. Okay. And, and you're doing these in, are you doing them in beds or in rows? So these are in rows. Um, we do a lot of hand harvesting just with garden shears and carts and um, crates, but I do have a um, sickle bar mower so that we can 
cut some of the crops that way. So we we definitely go in rows because that way you can till in between them and and walk in between them. But we actually, because we don't do a lot of tractor cultivation except for um, opening up new fields, um, we um, like do double rows, which you can't do with the tractor cultivation, at least not that I know of. But David's really the tractor guy. But so we can do double rows of lemon balm. So our rows would be about three to four feet wide. And then there'd be a, a row that's mulched to walk, a path to walk down and harvest. And so that's how that goes. And, um, yeah, did that answer okay. your question about production or do you have? I think it's an interesting area to delve into just because most of us haven't been on a, on an herb farm. I know, you know, in 25 years of farming, I mean, I had my herb, I had my culinary herb farm, but we didn't, how the medicinals work is kind of a, that's kind of a mystery to me. I was on one, well, I was on two herb farms out in Oregon back in the mid nineties, you know, so it's not something that all of us have, have seen. So when you're doing the when you're doing the perennials and and by the way I think it's fascinating that you're actually planting nettles. Um, yeah. You know, I mean that, that I guess that's that's like the crazy life of the herb farmer there. But well, hey, I just have to say that it's not so crazy to plant them as it is to harvest them. That's where it really yeah, that's, gets crazy. Yeah. Although I I well on my farm nettles were actually the most profitable crop that we grew. Because we didn't grow them, we just went out and picked them. So there was absolutely no, you know, no overhead. All we had was the harvest cost. We'd put them in a clam shell, and you could, and we could wholesale them for a dollar eighty a clam. Yeah, now, they're delicious. The, yeah, and I always thought it was kind of crazy. I mean, the the problem was it was definitely the most profitable crop we grew, but it was also the, um, you know, you, you, we could only sell about six clam shells of of nettles a week. So it, right. I mean, you certainly couldn't base the farm on that. <laughs> But the thing that's interesting to me about the perennials, like you said, with the weed control and having that, that three-year rotation, that need to kind of get in and, and get back out again, um, you mentioned weed control, not doing much tractor cultivation, so focusing on things like tools like wheel hose and hand hose for that. Yes, yeah. and rototiller. And just between, down going down between the rows with the rototiller. Right. Yeah, and... What are you doing for fertility? I mean, three years is a long time to have a crop in place. So that's where the grass-fed beef come in handy. Um, David does a really great job of turning, um, like getting manure piles together and turning them a few times and then getting them aged a few years out. And then in the winter or, um, you know, very early spring when the ground is still frozen, he spreads the manure out there and um, that really helps. And then I use um, sustain and, um, yeah, so that's how we manage that. And um, our village of North Freedom drops all their bags of leaves here. So we have like mountains of bags of leaves and it's just a wonderful free organic matter that we're able to mulch in between the rows and that breaks down every year too. Gives good humus and great soil. And then for the for the harvest process, I mean you said garden shears and, and carts and, and totes, but I'm imagining the Different than with a culinary herb farm, you guys are probably going out and and harvesting, say, a whole bed of lemon balm at once, right? Well, you know, this is where our bottleneck is. It's in the drying facility. Um, we bought a like, um, you know, like a shed, a kit that you can get that's ten by twelve, and retrofitted it 
with you know three by three racks there's probably 30 or maybe more than that uh, three by three uh, racks in there so we put the herbs in there and it runs on a dehumidifier so the moisture is getting pulled out with a very low level of heat uh, because you know we don't want them too hot so we can preserve the essential oil quality Um, so that dryer though is running from May to almost November and I remember last year I turned it off for one overnight I mean it is always going wow right so um, we also then made like an herb wilting rack that we can it's like an old trailer with you know a number like a number of racks on it stacked up about six deep that we can haul with a tractor out to the field and when say we harvest lemon balm we can put it on there to just let it pre-wilt you know it's it's got a cover on it so the sun isn't hitting it but the air can flow through and just to get it partially dried before it goes in the dryer so that speeds up our drying time but um anyway yeah it's kind of a bottleneck the drying facility now you said you bought a, a 10 by 12 kit that just a 10 by 12 shed you didn't get like a 10 by 12 drying shed kit right it was just a regular shed that you get at any of those home building supply stores right yeah right. so that was retrofitted um we have like it has um, insulation on the north facing side but on the south facing side we didn't insulate it so that it can get some solar heat in there and that seems to work pretty well. You know, as organic farmers, you get pretty creative with your methods and um, also really always caring about the earth and trying to do things as um, consciously as you can without, you know, less inputs and all of that, like as in fuel and electricity. Right, right. And, I mean, obviously the dehumidifier, that's something that takes that, – that can't be a small amount of electricity that that's running off of. Is that something that – also that you just picked up at a at a home supply store or is that is that a commercial dehumidifier it is a commercial dehumidifier it's not just it's a very strange archaic old thing that actually um i mentioned starting to work at a my first herb farm a research place on the east side of madison when they went out of business um i was back in wisconsin and was able to purchase a bunch of their drying equipment so my first two dryers that I had, um, which were about the size of a large closet. I used those up until I got the tea um, project going. So anyway, the same dehumidifier went from that, um, and I like I purchased it from my old place of employment. Anyway, that's the one that then was moved outside into this other drying facility. It's, it's, it's like no dehumidifier you've ever seen before. <laughs> And doing the drying is in the shade is really important, right? You don't want – it's not like you, you can't take those herbs and just set them out in the sun. No, um, and actually not if you want good quality herbs um, because that's where you keep the color and the chlorophyll. Um, if you put them out in the sun, they get bleached or turn white. I'm sure anyone who um, kept herbs in like a jar where there was sun hitting them has noticed the fading of the colors or if they're in the light, how you lose your color. And I'd say that this is one reason why the quality of our products, and particularly you can taste the difference in our teas, is because our handling is so 
I'd say superior than what you could get on the worldwide market. And, um, you know, most, most tea companies are forced to buy their herbs just from the world market. And what makes ours so different is that we are in charge of the quality from seed to, we say from seed to solution or from, to the finished product. So, I like that. Yeah, so you know, we just take such great care. Like when they're dried, they're bagged, and we put them in a nice, dark, cool spot and in the back of a barn until they're um, getting ready to be shipped to the processor. And anyway, it, the quality is amazing. You can really taste the difference. Are you selling some of your herbs as raw product in addition to processing them yourself? I just can't. You know, we just look at, you know, when I describe my processing and my harvesting, you can just see that the value of our herbs is just crazy amount of labor. And um, I really don't sell them like that, except to Wallersheim Winery for their gin and absinthe. It's really kind of fun to partner with another local value-added grower. And so we do sell some of our wormwood and a couple things just because it's such a cool partnership. Well, and I'm glad you're focused on the important stuff like the gin. I mean, that's really... <laughs> right. I mean, why wouldn't you want to partner with Wallersheim Winery? That's right. That's right. You know, and it is, it is funny, those, those weird little specialty markets. Um, I, was, I was actually at one point selling several thousand dollars a year worth of dills to a guy who was producing Akavit up in the, up in the Twin Cities, which is... I guess like a Norwegian liqueur. I could I could hardly stand the stuff. But, you know, he he like you know he needed dill and he needed it at a specific stage and and it needed to be fresh and and we kind of we fit the bill for that. And it was it was an interesting foray for us into something that was very different again than than doing the culinary herbs or even doing the vegetables where where we were dealing with you know getting something just to the right point. You know what what he wanted and I'm imagining you run into into this with, with your herbs too. What he wanted was dill that was in flower, but hadn't gone to seed yet. So he wanted it just at the point when there were the, where, where there were the most number of flowers, but, but not any further than that. Perfect. And, and then we would go out and we would just, you know, it was picked the whole patch, which wasn't how we normally did things to go out and, you know, and you're dealing with stuff that at that point your dills, you know, two, three feet tall and so we're harvesting off of that and and packaging that up and shipping it out right away. And that's got to be something with because you're drawing your product, it's not like it's not like you're harvesting it to order, you're harvesting it when it's at the right stage. At peak potency, right. Yeah. That's what I like about your story is that um the Aquavit um manufacturer was having you harvest it right at the peak potency, which is when the plant is coming into flower, but it's not yet fully developed. And that's when the plant is carrying most of the essential oils. So that's another great thing about producing my own herbs is we know exactly when to harvest them and we're here and we're, you know, we're all set up to do that. So, you know, it's just great to know that the quality of the herbs that is in your product has all of that, you know, perfect, um, you know, that perfect amount of essential oils and just the best quality as possible. You must have quite a crew to get that harvesting done in a timely fashion. 
Actually, I am very impressed with my crew because it's like two 20-something girls, my daughter, and then another woman. And really, I was just mainly doing management. Um, as I say, I love, I passed the hoe <laughs> instead of pass the torch after so yeah. many decades <laughs> in the field. So, um, yeah, I'm very impressed with the work they did. And, um, yeah, no doubt they did a great job. Could you describe to us, I mean, physically just the steps that would go into, say, harvesting a crop of, and, and let's let's pick on nettles. I mean, you go out to harvest the nettles, the tools that you're using and, you know, how you're how you're going about getting that transported back to the shed and the kinds of time frames that you're looking at for that? Okay, so nettles is a crop that doesn't carry a lot of moisture. It's a pretty dry crop. So we would haul that wilting um, trailer out there, and then um, with the nettles, it would be easy to harvest with a sickle bar motor, mower because they would um, be able to sprout from those rhizomes under the ground. Unlike lemon balm, which if you shear it that close, there's not enough nodes to really have it re-sprout. So you have to know how the plant is growing. But with nettles, you can take the sickle bar mower out there, chop it, and then... So when just a sec, when you go out with the sickle bar mower... That's like a, a BCS. Is that on a like a two-wheeled tractor and you're just going out and chopping it right down to the ground and then it's laying on the ground? Um, well, the stems are still up about four inches or so. We kind of retrofit it so it goes up a little bit. And so um, then those are sitting on the stems. And then we can rake those into little piles and pick them up. And, of course, on the nettle harvest day, you're wearing long sleeves and long pants. So we try to do it on an overcast or cooler day if possible. Right. And then it goes on to the dryer um, and depends upon what's happening in the the dryer um, shed. Um, So they could stay on that rack um, just ideally just until the end of the day. And then uh, we would put them in the dryer at the end of the day, and they would probably be ready to garble, or we uh, rub them over screens to take the stems off the next morning. Um, and then those go into woven poly bags. Uh, put We put a lot number on them, which corresponds to the date, the field, and the genus species. And then they're stored in uh, a dark, cool place in the back of a barn till they're ready to be processed. What did you call that when you when you when you rub them over the screen to separate the leaves and the stems? It's garbling, which is such a great archaic herbal term. I love that. Yeah. And so that's just a manual process. Then you do you have any? You don't have much of fancy equipment to get that job done. You know that would actually be great to come across the right fancy equipment because that's a job that's really wearing my staff thin. That one really gets old because it's very dusty. They they wear dust masks, um, and actually one of them really reacted to the nettles. Her skin broke out in a rash because nettles contain histamines. So you know that. That's kind of logical. It could happen to somebody where they break out in a rash from garbling nettles. But um, anyway, yeah, that, in fact, the other process up in Minneapolis, he does have um, more machinery to 
to grind up the herbs like that. But what, but ours actually get to be such a great quality because we're eliminating the stems and um, creating more of the volume of the leaf, which carries more of the essential oils. I guess that makes for a, a really artisan product that way. I mean, like you say, if you're grinding that up, you're getting you're getting everything. And I know, you know, even like when I've done, you know, something like pesto, we always, I always like to take the leaves off of the stems, you know, and I know a lot of people just take the whole thing and shove it in the Cuisinart. But when you, when you take the time to actually take the leaves off of the stem and then, you know, I even go so far and I, I mean, I'm a little bit of a freak about my pesto, but <laughs> I go so far as to, as to do it in my, in my mortar and pestle rather than grinding it in the Cuisinart so that you, you know, you, but it, all of those things do make a difference in how, in what you end up with because you're, you're, tr- you're managing every step of it differently rather than, you know, you're macerating it rather than grinding it. You're working with the leaves rather than like the whole plant. So you're really concentrating those, those flavors. I do think that stuff, I mean, it adds up. Right. Yeah. The quality difference. I think one of the interesting things now, especially as you've moved into, into more of the wholesale marketplace, I found that with, with a lot of times when you're working with a higher end product, it's difficult to differentiate that for the customer to say, I mean, when somebody's looking and they're going like, okay, I can get this lip balm from, from, you know, big national company X, or I can get it from four elements herbals. How do you convey that story that says, Hey, you know, this, the, these lip balms are made from, you know, hand garbled, um, you know, carefully, you know, dried in the dark, um, you know, handled with love in an unpolluted area, you know, all of that. How do you get all of that across? Well, that is a trick, but um, education, and we really make it kind of clear on our packaging and our printed material that we uh, grow the herbs. Like, for example, on the tea boxes, there's a picture of David and I on the back, and it kind of bothers me when you get other national brands, like with a picture of a wheelbarrow, and you know darn well they have nothing to do with a wheelbarrow. <laughs> um, but anyway, we do our best to bring that message message across and our printed material. Um, we've got some new promotional material that talks about the four elements and how we use the air, earth, fire, and water and our practice, you know, the gardening and our land and everything. Um, but by going to those trade shows, you can really try to capture the right people. In fact, it's so interesting when I do Natural Products Expo East and West, you get people walking by and their eyes are just glazed over with this you know, similar type of stuff out there, and they can actually feel it. They just turn their heads and come in our booth. Our booth is always packed at those trade shows. And because the market is so saturated with um, commercial products right now, that mine really does stand out to the buyers, and now I'm getting reps in different regions of the country that can help educate the stores uh, and then the buyers, um, but it's really great to get in like apothecaries where, or, you know, really good co-ops, you know, which they have great staff generally in co-ops or the specialty stores where the staff is educated enough to know the difference. And, you know, for me, the most important thing is that I truly represent nature, that when people pick up a four elements product, that that, heal, that healing power of nature is really going to be captured in the product so that they will get the effect that they're really looking for. Um, but yeah, that's a tricky thing. You know, it's a very 
um, bloated market right now, and um, it's it is a little trick to leverage that. Great, I love I love the passion that you talk about that with. I mean, that's just. I mean, I I think that you know when you talk about trying to make that stuff shine through in your packaging, I think that's just so important, you know, letting people know that this is not just, it's not just an anonymous product. Yep. And, and it is a trick like you're, you're pointing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. So we're going to take a quick break here, Jane, and get a word from our sponsors. And then when we come back, I want to talk about, about your processing process and, you know, how you got into that and and how all of that works, some of the nuts and bolts okay, great. on that side, I think. All right. We'll look forward to that. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges organic growers face and combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant sciences and an intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost, inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont Compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost Potting Soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Oh, and the donkeys are the real thing. You get a little bit of donkey manure on every batch of Vermont Compost Potting Soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it's a truly superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors, with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment, power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Jane Holly Stevens from Four Elements Herbals in, in the Baraboo Bluffs of Wisconsin. So, Jane, I said before we went on the break that we were going to talk about, about processing because, I mean, this is obviously where where you're really – and we want to, to be crass about it. This is where you're making your money, right? It's not just a matter of growing the herbs. It's a matter of doing something with it and putting it into a saleable product. Um, that's really a hallmark of what Four Elements does. I mean, you got into that from the start, but it's one thing to it's one thing to mix up a batch of lip balm in your kitchen to to take along with your herb plants at a you know some herbal renaissance fair in in a you know in Dallas, Texas, and it's another thing to have that as actually a commercial product. So can you tell us a little bit about how you how you developed and how you actually go through the process now of, of making all these soaps and lotions and creams and lip balms and all that stuff? Well, 
Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, I have to say first that it is really the passion that I have for the plants and their qualities that really kept driving me through all of the steps to make this happen. And really, it was more of a... um, it was really more like meandering down a path than really having a vision of having this national company. You know, the way you ask the question makes me feel like that. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it was really a step-by-step process of, um, okay, um, you know, now I'm going to make a lip balm, and then now I'm going to make a soap because I was learning about how these plants work, and it was really my enthusiasm how I would get make different products instead of, you know, what's the latest trend or that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, mine is a more traditional line, um, but... You know, it just, you know, for a while then I just had too many products because it's so easy to be inspired by the plants. So when I did my rebranding, I um, cut out a lot of the different products, actually, that you had mentioned at the beginning of the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, because those labels are expensive, the artwork is, is expensive. So I just, you know, featured different product categories and skipped others. So um, anyway, that's, I'm sure. So what, you know, what more specifically are you looking for about this process? Well, I guess I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in how, how you go from doing a product, say in your kitchen and doing the product development, you know, the, this, this process of, of, I'm just trialing something to actually setting up a commercial processing system because, those are pretty different things. Okay. So I think the best way to answer your question is just, um, you know, I always wanted to follow the rules. You know, it's just not worth my energy to try to get in a trouble situation. So as soon as I started making internal products like tinctures and my teas, which were first just processed um, in canisters, kind of loose in bulk. And, um, Then I had to get a commercial kitchen, and that's when I was here in the bluffs, and we had a barn, a vacant barn. So um, I got the regs from the state on what uh, process kitchen, commercial kitchen needs, and we installed that a really low budget, um, you know, most everything um, recycled. And so we had a really rough commercial kitchen still certified by the state for about maybe 10 years. And then about maybe 12 years ago, we um, got a, just tore that out down to the ground and then put in a much more level and tight commercial kitchen that was much nicer. But then really, as we got bigger, we had to set up another one down at the, where the business is now at a leased bank in North Freedom. So, you know, every year we have to get the state in to certify um, the kitchen. And um, yeah, so we're just following the regulations, but it just grew, I have to say, organically. It was just like, let's add another product. You know, people are asking for this type of um herbal product, or this is inspiring me. I want to try it and see how it works. So that's how the line really grew. But we kept trying to follow the regulations as we went along. Did you find challenges with, with 
following the regulations? I mean, I know that sometimes when you go to the state and you say, I want to do this, what they really try to do is say no. Um, you know, really, I'd have to say that the state of Wisconsin, there have been a few things. I mean, the, the, um, the inspectors have to find things. I mean, it, it is their job, and I, I just want to cooperate you know, as best as possible. So I didn't find the challenges there. Um, my challenges are actually with, um, I'm on the radar of the FDA, and that's been more challenging. Um, you know, just, it's very difficult as an herbalist to not talk about how herbs work. And because I make herbal products, um, like I'm not allowed to talk about how they work. So I, for a while, had a blog. It was so much joy in that winter to write about these different plants, and I really didn't know I was breaking the federal regulations by doing that. So um, I got a visit from an agent who had all my blogs stapled together and highlighted, and if I used any of those herbs in a product, um, that was against the rules. So I had to take down my blog and I'm still wondering what I can write about. <laughs> wow. I mean, when, when did, or you actually had an agent show up on your doorstep? Oh uh, yeah. For the past three years. In fact, um, because we had mentioned my company Four elements, I, um, on this, in our interview today, I'm not uh, allowed to say anything about what the herbs do um, in any of my products. And unless, unless we didn't mention my company, then I could maybe have a little more leeway. So, you know what? I wow. just feel like, just tell me the rules. I don't want to break them. I, I just, I have so much energy invested in running my business. I don't have any extra energy to try to fight this stuff. You know what I'm saying? I totally know what you're saying, but it, at the same time, I mean, it's, I would just think it's got to be insanely frustrating and, and how terrifying to have somebody show up on your doorstep with all your blogs stapled together and tell you, I'm from the FDA and you're doing something wrong. Right. And I guess I am so naive because I did say to him, oh, yeah, I just want to cooperate. Thank you for educating me. You know, together we can like really uh, do great work for like the state of Wisconsin, you know, and all this stuff. And he's like, no, really, I'm I'm really like more the agent, more like the cops. He's not like the. You know, he's, right. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, oh, right, okay, I get it. So it's been challenging in that way. And as far as, as far as the processing process goes, so if you're, if you're making something like, I mean, an herbal tea, that's pretty straightforward, right? That's just, that's just herbs. Right. That's just dried herbs. If you're doing something like a lip balm or a salve, is that, I mean, is this a, is it a cooking process? Is it just a blending process? And are you just doing that in, you know, pots and pans and mixing bowls or is it, do you have some, something fancier that you've invested in to make that work? Yeah. Restaurant equipment will work for all of these things. And this is what makes our products so unique too, is that we, um, can take the herbs and in the summer we like to use fresh ones, especially for the salves and lip balms and, um, just heat them at a hundred degrees, um, for 24 to 48 hours. So the quality qualities of the herbs are infused in the oil. And, um, yeah, so mainly our products are made by either, um, herbs infused in oil or herbs infused in water, much like it would be like if you made a strong tea, 
Um, so we have uh, in the basement of our facility in North Freedom, we probably have 150 five-gallon tins with our different herbs in them um, that we can use throughout the winter for making the creams and some of the other products. Which I think leads to kind of an interesting thing that we've that we've touched on is your business has undergone a tremendous amount of growth in the last four years when you when you went into this this bag tea business and I mean and I'm and I'm looking at your I'm looking at your packaging online and I mean these are this is this is professional packaging right this is I mean this is your this isn't this isn't a little homestead putting things in a in a funky little box I mean you clearly put a lot of effort into into the design and the and the presentation and the branding of all of this I can't imagine Jane because I I mean I know you and and you're no offense Matt but I mean you're definitely an old hippie I mean this is <laughs> this is the the realm that you're coming out of and and yet you've you've grown this business tremendously over the last few years. I'm thinking that this process must've been a real challenge for you because I mean, suddenly you're going from, I'm thinking being the person who's down there blending the teas or making the, the fun gal salves. And, and now you're having to put in some standardized processes, get other people to do this work. I mean, you mentioned that you've kind of stepped back from the farming operation now how have you managed all of that? It's true. I've had to step into the management position with this job now with all the growth. Um, and for a while, you know, it felt a little bit odd to just go from, mm-hmm. you know, the herbal mama to the business woman. Um, but, you know, I'm up for the challenge. I'm the age that this is more appropriate. And, you know, we all like to evolve. So um, there's that. But, yeah, it's lots of challenges in that area that you're talking about um and having more personnel of course i'm i'm somebody who cares about people so you know the more employees you have you whatever's happening in their life kind of affects what's happening in your life too like their problems kind of become part of your life and so there's all of that and just the volume, but, um, yeah, I guess that's been all a challenge, but the packaging thing I'd like to talk about more. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that packaging that we have now is about the fifth um, generation of my packaging. I mean, my first packaging, it's so fun to think about this, but when I first started making soaps in like 1988, um, Whole Foods had just bought their second store. They moved from Austin to Dallas, and I had been wrapping my soaps in muslin squares that I cut, and I had a stamper that I'd stamp the name of them, a rubber stamp, and I'd color it in with um, colored pencil, and I delivered those soaps to Whole Foods, and they were actually my first customer. It's so funny to think um, that I could be selling products without UPCs and everything to Whole Foods and, you know, where the market is now. It's just it's just actually way more difficult for me to sell my products now than it was then, because that was the birth of the industry um, where there was no competition. I could go in a health food store and which were all mom and pops. And, you know, there would be something with aloe in them, you know. In my department, I mean, it was a lot about the vitamins then. Right. Um, and they would pick up, like, so many of my products. It was just so easy. 
And now it's just so competitive and, you know, stores demand free fills and uh, it's just ruthless out there now. Um, you know, unless you find the right partners and I definitely have those and I have, you know, several well-established customers, but um, I'd just like to read you this little thing that I have, this little paragraph that I have in my new printed material because it pertains to what we're talking about right now. And it just says, why choose four elements? Four elements harkens back to the birth of this industry where we chose healing products direct from natural sources and from folks who are stewards of the earth. Supporting four elements creates a fair trade environment where our family and dedicated local talent grows, creates, packages, and ships products that we use and believe in. So that kind of describes what you're saying about me, that I've had to go from just, you know, being excited about herbs and making a few products into bringing it into this national market. But I feel like I'm really well-placed right now where people are looking again for the, the purity and the less commercialism in order to set their stores apart. I think you do such a good job with that. And just, I mean, again, looking looking at your new, the new packaging, I mean, that's really something that it doesn't, it doesn't have that, that commercial sheen to it, if you will. Well, one thing is we don't use any plastic packaging. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, I think, you know, as somebody who reuses their plastic bags uh, for, um, you know, reuses plastic bags five times, um, you know, why would I want to buy boxes of plastic and ship those around the country? I mean, um, I think that's what gives our products more of a clean and natural look, too, is by having, um, you know, everything in glass or, you know, paper or tin or things like that. So when you're working on these on these packaging issues, you know, you you talked about the materials that you're using, but we've also talked about some of the graphic design. I encourage people to go check this out. I mean, it's one of the best. It's a fantastic logo and it's a fantastic look that you've got. The and, and it actually harkens back very nicely to what you were talking about about having a rubber stamp and color, coloring things in yourself on on those first labels. But are you are you working with obviously a professional designer? But are you working with your buyers to decide how how to make these things look, or is this is this no. kind of coming from you? Well. It's just very, it's so cool that I found the right designer. I mean, so um, somebody was helping me just find artists in the Madison area. And, you know, everywhere we went, there was, you know, computer graphics. And we went to these designers and there they were with pencils and paper. And it was like, these are the right guys because, you know, I want real art. And then, um, you know, I just, Anyway, because they were going to do hand drawings of everything. And then um, every time I go to meet them as we were developing this look, my new look, um, I'd wear different colors that I liked. And I said, these are my colors, you know. And then um, I also brought in books of Matisse and said how I really liked that art. And they really wanted to... um, you know, honor who I was and really get the look of the back to earth, which is my number one leverage that I've got going. And um, I think they did a fantastic job. But yeah, that was, 
that was part luck and part effort because I did look around at uh, quite a lot to find the right designers. But um, you know, I kind of knew what I was looking for. I was looking for that pencil. And then I yeah. helped guide them. Like we looked through so many different logos. It was, it was really quite a moment. I don't think everyone would tell this story, but um, when I went in and they showed me all the logos, I just actually started crying because it was so beautiful. I just couldn't believe the beautiful work they did. I, you know, it just a few tears came. I was like, I can't believe how beautiful this is. So I had some great stuff to choose from. And then I really liked the color palette and everything. So yeah, I love the, um, and they said they're trying to get the, um, um, impressionistic look too, which I think they did. And they kind of got the movement of the plants going. So I, I think they did, I think they did a fantastic job and, um, the buyers anymore, they're just way too busy. You could never bother them with anything like that. Um, but it has to be right. And, I am finding that I'm attracting much, um, many more clients. And in fact, I don't think I could be bringing my brand forward if I hadn't rebranded again, um, you know, during the grant and all of that. And that grant, that was a value added producer grant, right? Right. And, and had money in that to actually do that rebranding process. Yeah. So it, you know, it was mainly for the teas and I had to, do out of pocket on a lot of the other stuff because the project was for the keys, but still it would help pay for some of that artwork. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier having, you know, part of, part of being able to grow your business has been having the right partners. Can, when, when you say the right partners, who are, what, what kinds of partners are you thinking about there? Well, <clears throat> not to offend any of the other great um, stores that help us along our way, but really the co-ops. I think co-ops and what I'm doing are just such a natural fit, and I think it's really important for co-ops and independents and farmers to maintain their partnerships to keep that integrity going of what started this industry. Um, I've just seen it go so commercial that... um, well, I, I don't let it dishearten me or anything, but it's just a different world. And um, I just think it's so important because really when people go in a co-op or a health food store, what they're looking for is something more natural, something closer to the earth. So I think it's really important that I that we can maintain those partnerships like here I am, the farmer, the creator, the herbalist, um, supplying real products um, that get real results to, to, you know, especially co-ops and small independents. Like, you know, they're the ones who have the educated staff that can talk to their customers about what I'm doing. And anyway, so I think, I think that's, you know, a really strong partnership. Yeah. And I think that that educated staff would be a hugely important for you, but you're not, you're not selling directly to co-ops around the country, right? How are, how, when you talk about being out on the natural product shows on the East and the West coast and, and having more of a national presence, is that all still coming directly from four elements or are you working with distributors now? I've actually had a distributor for the past about 22 years, um, out of a distributor, a small one, Lotus light out of, um, Wisconsin, and they've been really good to me. We've had a great partnership for all those years. 
um, the grant got me a couple grocery, uh, in, you know, with the teas, that project got me in a couple distributors, um, that distribute more to grocery stores and, um, they're doing a great job actually partnering with Woodman's. Um, I mean, there's no education in the aisle, in the aisles there, but the teas are moving there and there's so many stores. It's a great Wisconsin chain and um, they've been doing a great job. Um, the distributor that gets all my teas out to Woodman's. And then there's a distributor up in the Twin Cities that sells to the high-end grocery stores up there. And um, that's a little trickier. Why is that one a little trickier? Um, <clears throat> because I don't, you know, I don't know why it hasn't gained the traction that I thought it was. Ho- I was hoping for. Um, it just would take so much demoing, and maybe we don't have a, the right amount of staff mm-hmm. up there to be sampling the teas in the store aisles as much as we should. But. Um, it's just unbelievable the amount of work that this that anything takes to to launch it anymore. It's just mind blowing. Well, I remember I had I had some friends who who launched a a big brand um in the in the national foods industry and how much work they had you know all of the time that they spent on the road going to demos you know going and cooking their product in the store and trying to you know talk about it and. I mean, that's that's just a, such a tremendous amount of work. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is. It's just uh, stuff you don't sign. think you're signing up for when you get into, um, you know, your inspiration. You just don't think you're signing up for all of that. Like yesterday, for an hour and a half, unloading cardboard boxes from a truck that delivered boxes for my teas and unloading those into the basement of my building in North Freedom, you know, it's, I just kept thinking, wow, I didn't know I was signing up for this when I got so inspired with herbs. Well, and it's funny, I mean, you know, here, here you are with this, with this large and growing company and you're still the one humping cardboard boxes down into the basement. Well, you know, I kind of felt, you know, I'm somebody who likes activity and um, I felt like, well, I think the other, everyone else on the staff is better off just making and shipping and doing their thing. And it just in a way felt satisfying to do that, that manual labor. And it was just so cute. We were in this little village and the kids were off because it was a day, a snow day. And um, this mom drove by with a 15 year old boy in the back and said, maybe I could help her. And they pulled over and they offered to help. It was just so, so sweet. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Well, and I, and I just, and I love what you just said about thinking that maybe your staff would be better off doing the things that they were already focused on and that this was just a way that you could, that you could support them really, you know, moving the boxes into the basement. And I think sometimes when we're managers, we forget that that sometimes that's the most important job is the stuff that's the, you know, the, what, what you normally stick the low man on the totem pole with just so that everybody can continue to focus on what they're doing. Yeah, it was, it seemed like the right thing at the moment. Have you had challenges with, with letting go of different aspects of your operation as you've grown? Um, I actually, I felt really supported and blessed with all of those helpers coming in at the right time. So I, I'd say more, more the opposite that I'd feel more grateful than, than anything else that the right people have come along at the right time to help me. So, um, so 
gratefully, it was just the right time to pass the hoe. And I'm not that good in the office anyway. And so I've got the great office manager and shipping is way too many details for me. So I've got the right person there. And it's just, I'm just so grateful for my staff. I would think that, that finding good people to do, I mean, you're talking about some fairly high level jobs when you've got somebody, you know, when you turn over the production and you turn over the office. And I've seen a lot of farmers have a hard time attracting the right people to do that. Do you have any thoughts about what you've done right for attracting people? I mean, Baraboo's not exactly a, a an epicenter of socially minded people who are, you know, who are really looking to to fully engage in this but you've you've attracted the right people to your place well i'd say the job market is something that's working in my favor because um look at the opportunities out there almost nothing and with our current climate in the state of wisconsin you know it just keeps getting a little uh, less inspiring in the marketplace um so i think that when people work for four elements, they can really know that they're in a really cool business that is really doing good work. It's very ethical. It's something that's helping humanity. Um, you know, so I think I have so much in my favor because, you know, the other um, employers in Baraboo are two plastics factory and a Walmart, you know, there's just not a lot of competition. Um, and so I find that my employees have a lot of pride in working for four elements and, you know, that it is really a great business. And I, I know they feel that. Is there anything that you found uh, in particular to be helpful when it comes to letting other people rise to those levels of responsibility? Okay, I think the most helpful thing is to not be too bossy. You know, it's nice. I, I always tell people, I actually worked in a job once where um, it was like, I really learned the lesson of like, let somebody even improve on what you do um, instead of my way or the highway. That's such an oppressive way to run um, employees, I think. So um, I've always let people, you know, I show them my best way, but if they want to improvise or do things their way, I think it gives them more self pride in their job. And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, so it's been really um, nice um, as a segue to actually see people doing maybe even better than I might have done. Um, and, yeah, so it's been really a nice flow in that department. And so what does your job consist of now? Um, well, I do a lot of business meetings. I do trade shows. I teach. Um Let's see, I'm still a mother of two school-aged children, uh, so that takes, you know, that's part of my job, and um, so I, I start the seeds in the spring and grow all the transplants. Um, today I have a business meeting in Madison. Um, yeah, so it's just a lot of management, uh, you know, a lot of business contacts, uh, the trade shows and lot, lots of business meetings, really. But it's exciting. It's nice. I feel like I kind of graduated, and it's kind of fun to wear a new hat. I'm. I like to evolve. 
All right. Well, with that, Jane, let's let's evolve into the lightning round, and and we'll start with what's your favorite tool on the farm? I love the wheel hoe. It's just it's just a fun, great tool to use. It's so I love how quiet it is. I can still hear the birds singing. I can be right up next to my plants, um, and it's just it's just so beautiful. I, I know I asked for it for Christmas once <laughs> from my husband for wheel hoe, and um, Anyway, I was surprised with the cost on them. They, they are shockingly expensive for what you have. But, you know, once you have one, I think everyone would say that they're just worth their money. And it's really such a joy to be able to do cultivation um, so balanced, agronomically, and that having that nice quiet as you're um, cultivating is, is really a plus. You know, I'd say when I've asked this question now, you know, over 50 times, and that's, that's one that has come up on multiple occasions is the, is the wheel hoe and probably the, the one that has been duplicated the most. What, what wheel hoe do you have? What brand? Ooh, I don't even know the one that I okay. love so much. <laughs> so Jane, when, when you're in the world of medicinal herbs, it's, it's a fairly specialized uh, product area. How, when you need information, when you're looking for, uh, solving a problem that you're having in your in your production or in your in your in your marketing process, where do you turn? Well, I'm a member of two professional organizations and involved. I'm on the council of the American um, Herbal Herbalist Guild, and then I'm also in the American Herbal Products Association, and I attend the meetings every year so that I can gain current information and see what's going on both in the regulatory sense and also just what herbs are being used uh, more popular and then a lot of the science behind them. That's more the American Herbalist Guild. And then um, I also have an amazing herb library. I mean, I could spend 10 years in in there and, um, and it would be a total joy. But yeah, so I have the library and I attend national meetings and that's how I um, keep gaining my knowledge in the subject of herbalism. Any changes that you're that you've got planned for the farm for this coming year? Well, it's all about marketing at this point. You know, I've got the beautiful design. I've got the amazing products. So I'll be attending um, Expo uh, West in March, and um, I'm going to be actually giving the Herb Walk. It's so fun to have a national profile um, of all my years of studying herbs. So um, sponsored by the American Herbal Products Association, I will be giving the Herb Walk at Expo West, and then again at Expo East in September. Um, I have a teaching schedule that I'd like people to check out online. And that's on your website at fourelementsherbals.com, right? Right. It'll be on my okay. on my website. So I'm just developing my class schedule. I think what's different is we're not going to do our annual open house this year because my daughter is graduating from high school, and she's done such a beautiful job with her high school years that we're doing a fabulous party for her instead of our annual open house. But I'd like to invite your listeners to come to my classes instead. And so I'm going to um, really feature a series of classes on the farm where people can come on the farm and get more uh, more of a formal class along with um, visiting the farm. And I will have my uh, plants for sale again in the spring too, my um, medicinal herbs. Great. And then 
If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh, boy, you just don't know what you're getting into with um, <laughs> with all the marketing, I'd say, is the hardest thing, um, what you're up against to try to... Um, to try to figure out how to, you know, be profitable every year and to really watch your cash flow uh, because there's always things you could stick money into a business. Um, and if you don't watch it, it might not be balanced. <laughs> I think that's great. Really perfect advice right there. I mean, that's just the kind of thing that I, well, I think you've talked so much about your passion about the herbs, you know, and, 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 and in some ways, that's that's how we get to – that's the price we pay to, to be able to play with our passion is you have to pay attention to the marketing. You have to pay attention to the money. Right. Right. And um, how many artists get into their profession just because they love what they're doing and all of a sudden find themselves with those sort of issues? Like probably most of us. All right. Well, Jane, thank you so much for making time to, to talk to us on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. And we'll see you at the Moses Conference. That's right. It's right around the corner. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 55 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for the show at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Holly. That's H-A-W-L-E-Y. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you'd enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com or PurplePitchfork.com. Please do head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook, by the way. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing. I really do appreciate all of the guest suggestions I received through the contact form on the FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Oh, and one more, one more thing. What I said at the beginning of the show... I really meant that. Thank you for being here. And thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>